Please open a Bible with me this morning to Psalm 97. The book of Psalms is a collection of songs in the middle of our our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, or maybe you you don't have a Bible of your own, you can use the one that's right there in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, What I'll be reading is on page 592. We, in these weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, and including next Sunday, Christmas Sunday, are looking at these Psalms, which are traditionally connected with Christmas Day. Psalms which on the liturgical calendar are read on Christmas morning. Now Psalm 98, which Pastor Mike will will preach for us next Sunday on Christmas morning, you might not know in your head, but you know the hymn that is based upon the psalm. Isaac Watts gives us the words, joy to the world, the Lord is come. And so so Psalm 98 brings the, the arrival of the king and yet the longing for his return. We look this morning at at Psalm 97, which actually begins with phrases taken directly from Psalm 96, which we saw last week. It begins with phrases that that were there in verses 10 and 11. The Lord reigns. Verse 1 of Psalm 97 is just repeating things we've already heard. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. And yet the psalm takes a, a dark turn, showing us the judgment of God. And so listen as I read from the Word of God. This is Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols, worship him, all your gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Let me pray that God would apply the truth of his word to our lives. God of grace and mercy, we hear this warning of judgment in your word, and it feels heavy, heavy upon our lives, and yet heavy particularly in this Christmas season. So Father in heaven, I pray that that as we listen to your word preached, our hearts would be changed, that your word would confront our sin. I pray for, for those who don't yet know Jesus as Savior, those who are inquiring into the, the truths of this Christmas season. Lord, that you would bring them to the place where they see their sin. And yet more than that, Lord, help them to find forgiveness for sins by returning to Jesus Christ in faith. Father, for those of us who follow after Christ, let your word confront us that we might be changed by the power of your spirit, that your your spirit would enable us to, to obey you with joy, that we might in this Christmas season be able to rejoice, even in this word of judgment spoken to your church. Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I stumbled across a, a story in my news feed last week. It would be a stretch to call it a news story because all it really did was point me to a website that allows users to simulate a meteorite impact anywhere in the world. So you pick the address, you choose the size of the meteorite and its speed and angle of entry, and then you watch the destruction. So just using the presets that come already built in with a gigantic meteorite, a, if a meteorite landed here at 720 Marsh Road, it would leave a five-mile-wide crater. The fireball of total destruction would stretch all the way down to Baltimore, millions of lives lost. But then you just hit reset and you, well, you pick a new address and you do it again. Because despite the severity of that kind of scenario, few of us spend our days in worry over a meteorite impact. It's a wildly unlikely possibility. Well, unless you believe the disaster movies of my childhood, and then you expect at least two giant meteors a year to hit Earth. But when we think about annihilation, destruction, it can force us to consider what kind of end we might face. What kind of judgment is coming? The news update I saw actually started with this line, play a vengeful God and send an asteroid to any spot on the planet. What kind of God would send judgment? And is a God of judgment worthy of praise? Especially at Christmas. Psalm 97 begins with the themes of Psalm 96, of God's reign over everyone, everywhere. The, the, the song of praise, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. It begins in a major key of, of praise and delight. But then it very quickly gets dark. It takes a frightening turn into judgment. And so what can we learn about God? And why does this truth of God's judgment offer us hope at Christmas? As we look at Psalm 97, first, I want us to see that judgment shows us the power of God. It, it's there in the language of verse 2. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And then the language becomes even more sinister. Verse 3, fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. The judgment of God being poured out with fury upon his enemies. Verse 4, lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. Things are so bad that by verse 5, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The judgment of God shows us his overwhelming power. And the, the imagery here is imagery that, that, well, maybe it sounds familiar even to you, because it's imagery that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament, and, and we heard it just a few weeks ago in the book of Exodus. Remember the story of Exodus. God rescued his people from their slavery in Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt so that he could teach them to worship him, and so he brought them to his holy mountain. And you remember what happened in Exodus 19 when the people arrived at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. 
God is going to reveal himself, so the people had to prepare. They had to be ready for God's arrival. They weren't to, to touch the mountain at all. And, and as God came to give his law to his people, this is what we read in, in Exodus 19. That on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai. See, when God arrives, his power and his perfection, his holiness and his majesty are on display, such that the physical manifestation is like a a fireball coming down of, of perfect holiness. Smoke and fire, lightning being descriptions for us of God's great power. Because God is meeting with his people to give them the law, to tell them how they are to live, how they are to act. The law will then hold up for them as, as if it holds up a mirror saying, do you measure up to the goodness and perfection of God? Now we saw that in Exodus 19 as the people are told that they're about to meet God, that God is going to give them commands. The people say, we'll do it all. We'll do whatever God asks of us almost foolishly claiming that they'll be able to keep the law. But of course, in the face of God's overwhelming power, that's the only right response. To say that, God, in your power and majesty, I will do whatever you ask, whatever you say. The the power of God, the, the judgment of God forces us to our knees and humbles us before God's great power, before the Lord of all the earth. And as Psalm 97 continues, we see that that not only does judgment show us the power of God, it shows us the authority of God. Now you might be thinking, Pastor, you just just said the same thing. You just repeated yourself. But, But what I mean here about the authority of God is that it is not distant power, like a supernova exploding somewhere else in the universe. It's power that is right here, in our midst, pressing into our own lives. Because that supernova that's exploding today, you'll never see the light from it. It's so far away from you to have no bearing on your life. And sadly, sadly, that's the way the people of Israel treated the power of God. In, in Exodus 19, they, they promise, we'll do everything that God commands. But they hear the law of God. As Moses is on the mountain, what do the people do? Well, God's been gone, or Moses has been gone a long time. I'll bet God forgot about us. We probably should come up with our own plans for worshiping God and living our own lives. See, when the power of God is at a distance, well, then we feel safe. And so the people of Israel, when God is at a distance, at the top of the mountain, Well, then they decide, let's take the gold and silver, the precious jewels that we have, and let's create a God, a calf for us to worship. But Psalm 97 won't let the power of God remain distant because look at how the psalm continues. Judgment shows us the authority of God in our lives. Look at verse 6. 
The heavens proclaim God's righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. The world in which we live is made by God, and it shows us something of his great power. And everyone sees it. Everyone will one day see that this is the glory of God. There is coming a day, the scriptures tell us, when, when in judgment Jesus returns that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because the power of God is brought to bear in our lives, God's authority shown to us. All the peoples see God's glory. And verse 7 is a a warning to those who worship idols. All who worship idols are put to shame. Those who boast in idols. And and we might think, well, pastor, this isn't really a problem for me because I've gotten rid of all the Canaanite and Israelite false gods in my house. There's no Baal or Asherah that, that we bow down and worship. And so we might think, well, you know, we're not foolish enough to worship idols. And yet, maybe in our sophistication, we don't have an altar in our living rooms. We just, well, we open the garage and we pull the idol in. Because it's the newer model than they had before. I mean, it's, it's, it's so much faster than last year's model. I have to have it. Or we, we are even more abstract than that. We don't, we don't turn idols, uh, we don't make idols out of the things in our lives. We, we make it out of the concepts, the ideas that surround us. We say, I could gain some control in my life if I just had enough money in the bank account. If a a, a little bit more would let me figure out what will happen tomorrow, it will keep me safe from whatever comes. If I could reach a certain place in my vocation, if people looked at me as somebody who had power and influence, then I would feel satisfied and complete. I'd feel whole and I'd I'd find joy. See, we, we live in a world where, yes, our neighbors, and maybe this is true for you and your family, have physical idols in their homes. But many of us, all of us, still take the good things of this world and make them ultimate things. We turn them into idols and we worship them. And everyone who worships an idol will be put to shame at the judgment of God because your idols will be exposed for what they are, empty. We saw in Psalm 96, they are nothing and good for nothing. Because no matter how much money you put in the bank account, it will not give you control over tomorrow. There isn't enough. No matter how much acclaim you receive from coworkers and friends, it isn't enough to heal the the longing of your heart to be secure and welcome. It's so bad that verse 7, it says not only will will those who worship false images be put to shame, their gods will be as well. Look at the command that's given at the end of verse 7. Worship him, all you gods. Even the demonic powers which reside behind the wood and the gold of the idols. Even those demonic powers will be forced to bow the knee before the Lord on the day of judgment. And so the command is given here that all who worship idols are put to shame. Those who boast on idols, worship him, all you gods. See, God is the universal king and conqueror. And this spells doom for those who have rebelled against God. For those who who are worshiping false gods, for those who won't acknowledge the true God, the Lord of all the earth, this brings judgment Upon you. 
And yet the psalm, it offers hope that there is light that will dawn. It offers the encouragement to hold on until daylight and victory come. The psalm serves for us as a warning, but also a, gives us a glimmer of hope. Now, my kids know my favorite corporate logo. I mean, you have a favorite corporate logo, right? That's a normal thing. My kids know my favorite corporate logo because every time I see it, I point out to them that, can you believe this image? All right? It's the, it's the Sherwin-Williams paint logo. It's a globe with a giant can of paint hovering over it, pouring out red paint over the whole world, splashing into space, dripping down with with drops like red blood falling off the planet. And then in big white letters, Sherwin-Williams boldly gives you their, their corporate goal, cover the earth. I mean, that's a big commitment. They're not talking about putting paint on every wall or every building on the planet. Their corporate goal is to cover the earth in red paint. Now, Sherwin-Williams paint is of great quality, but I hope they don't succeed. Because imagine what it would be like if they, if they conquered just one city with paint. I mean, paint everywhere. What do you grab to wipe off paint if it's also covered with paint? It would, it would be total destruction and absolute chaos. You would never get rid of it. Global saturation would be the end of us. But see, the reason I love that image is imagine it as a picture of God's forgiveness. I mean, it's not hard to do. It's bright red paint dripping like blood. The blood of Jesus covering our sins. Rebels now made righteous by the work of Jesus Christ. We are forgiven, made righteous. And so so not only does judgment here in Psalm 97 show us God's power and authority, judgment shows us the mercy of God. Notice how the the psalm shifts again. Verse 1 was was jubilant, filled with praise, but then verse 2 turned to darkness. But but verse 8 recaptures the verbs that we saw back in verse 1, to be glad and rejoice. And so we read in verse 8, Zion hears and rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. Zion, the name of the hill on which the temple of God is built in Jerusalem. But of course, it's a name used in the Old Testament much more broadly, a name actually to describe the people of God. They are the people of Zion, a name then which gets applied to us as the church of God, the people of God. We are Zion, not merely a geographic location, but but it's Zion, the villages of Judah hear of the judgment of God and rejoice because of God's mercy. We're told in in verse 9 that the Lord, Yahweh, is the God most high over all of the earth. He is the one exalted far above all gods. And then the commands come in verse 10. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. 
The language here is a, is a command to those who love God to turn away from evil. It's a promise that God is protecting the lives of those who are faithful. That, that light, that joy and hope will dawn in this darkness for those that are righteous. And yet that presents a problem for us. If those who are guilty will be judged by God, then how could we be counted among the righteous? If the law of God is held up like a mirror to us so that we see our own sin, how can we find hope in this psalm? For the scriptures declare that there is no one who is righteous. That's the argument the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 3. And it's not merely a New Testament argument, because what Paul does is he, he reaches back into the Old Testament, into the Psalter itself to say, let me show you how bad things are. In Romans 3, we read, and, and this is a, a, a lengthy quotation of Old Testament scriptures from the Psalms and the prophets showing us our rebellion against God. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3, verse, 9, verse 10, he, he quotes, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The judgment then falls on all of us. For there is no one who is righteous. So Paul reaches the conclusion in Romans 3, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. When you see the power and holiness and majesty of God, the mirror is held up to show you your guilt. And so what hope is there for those facing God's judgment? Now, thankfully, Romans 3 offers us hope. There is no righteousness in us, but Romans 3.21, hear this. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Do you see what the scriptures are telling us? We stand condemned as those who are guilty. The, the, the command of, of Psalm 97 says, let those who are righteous turn away from evil. The light will shine on the righteous. But, but Lord, we can't make ourselves righteous. But that's the good news of the gospel that a righteousness from God has come. That Jesus Christ, the Savior, came as an atoning sacrifice, one who died in our place so that his blood now covers us. And so that's the, the hope. I mean, and, and that's why I, I, every time we pass the signs or a billboard or a truck that has that Sherwin-Williams logo, I point it out to my kids. Look at the hope in that. If the blood of Jesus covers us, then our sins are forgiven. 
And so Psalm 97, for those who have turned and put their trust in Christ, becomes a word of encouragement. We can hear the the coming judgment of God and rejoice because God will make right all that has gone wrong. God has sent his son to take our sins and make us righteous. And so we we can pray the prayer of Psalm 97. Lord, help me to love you and to hate evil. Lord, guard my life because you call me one who is faithful because of the righteousness of Jesus. Light is now shed upon me because of the righteousness that has come through Jesus, our Savior. It is a call for us to obey because we have been made righteous. Now the Psalms, even these Psalms which enthrone God, the Lord reigns, are a reminder to us that we are longing. There's a a built-in longing to these songs. That we need God's reign to be seen everywhere. For God's glory to cover the earth. Because we look back to the arrival of Jesus as king, and yet we feel the brokenness of this world, and so we long for his coming again. Jesus, the Savior, who will come to rescue us. See, God's judgment against sin reveals our need for Christmas. We are unrighteous And we need righteousness to come. And God's judgment against sin, it reveals our hope at Christmas. One one pastor summarizes Psalm 97. He says, God's return to renew the world will bring worldwide joy. Jesus has come. His glory covers the earth. And so this Christmas, rejoice in the Lord you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, even as it presses down upon us, exposing our sin, revealing our unrighteousness. Father in heaven, I pray that in your word we would find the hope of salvation that is offered to us in Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Lord, I pray for those who have listened or will listen to the the recording of this sermon, that those who do not yet believe would be drawn by the power of your spirit and the, the power of your word to turn away from sin and in faith in Jesus Christ find forgiveness of sins, for it is the blood of Jesus which offers us hope. He has come to make us righteous, not because of anything good in us, but by our response of faith because of his goodness and glory. So, Father, this Christmas, let our hearts be filled with joy. Jesus Christ would cover the whole earth. Father in heaven, we come to give you praise, praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.